Hello, welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I will look at, uh, this will, well, it'll be part two of my coverage, my look at Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Uh, if you're just joining us, you may want to go back to the previous episode where I look at the first quarter of the, of the novel, the novella. This was written in late 1926, early 1927, but it would not appear in print till several years after Lovecraft died. It was uh, posthumously published as well, as was his other long novella, uh, which we'll be looking at right after this, and that is the case of Charles Dexter Ward. So in the first episode, uh, we saw uh, Randolph Carter's motive for seeking out Kadath, his desire to fulfill, uh, to go back to a place he dreamed of before. Um, he goes through the Enchanted Woods, he meets the Zoogs, he moves on to Ulthar, uh, gets kidnapped eventually after he goes to Dilethleen, gets kidnapped by the Black Galleys. Uh, these are, will later turn out to be the men from Lang who do this, but it's not really, um, it's not clear now. He hears rumors of Lang, but he doesn't know that these are the men from, men from Lang. They take him to the moon where he's going to be brought before uh, Nairalo Otep. Um, but he gets freed by the cats, who we befriended earlier. The cats uh, fight the men from Lang, fight the moon beasts. Um, eventually, he's returned to Dilethleen and is able to get on a ship to to uh, get to the mountain of of Negranic. Negranic has been established as important because on the carvings of Negranic are the faces of the gods, and uh, Carter was told earlier that. If he can see these faces and recognize them on a person's face, he'll know he's closer to Kadath, the, the domain of the gods. Uh, there are like these half-breed people uh, that are half-god, half-human out there, but they'll have the face and the features of the gods. So he's going to send Negranic to, to find that. So this episode will cover about 25 pages of Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, covering Carter's adventures from Negranith to Cellaface. Cellaface is a place we've... Uh, been before, and that'll take us to about the midway point in the novel. Uh, if you, it's actually a good idea to reread Cellaface if you want to read Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Although much of the Cellaface plot is undercut and um, also also revisited, so it's not necess necessary that you do it. But I think it's uh, it's good. Just like the Silver Key actually contrasts pretty interestingly with uh, the Dream Quest. So, anyways, uh, where we leave off. Uh, He's ascending the granite, uh, climbing up this mountain. Um, there are interesting caves on the side. In fact, there's a lot of different remnants of different religious pilgrimage uh, of the lava gatherers. We talked a little bit about the lava gatherers last time. These are people who, who collect essentially the lava and sell it. They, they basically are people who live on the granite and, and interact with the local town of Baharna. For their economy, there's all these little vignettes of social history in the dream in the dreamlands. I think that's you know Lovecraft has hundred pages here to explore fully um, the the people, the places, the different species, the different monsters of the dreamlands, and he has a lot of fun with them. I think that's maybe one reason some people like this. It can also be frustrating when you you know when all this kind of bizarre stuff happens, you know, like the cats attacking the moon beasts after flying into the moon, essentially. It's, it's, it's bizarre stuff. It, it, is, it is a pure fantasy world. It's the dreamlands, right? 
so Lovecraft's able to kind of do whatever he wants here. Um, but, um, so I think he starts climbing one morning and he sees all these old remnants of things. Um, but as, as he climbs, he climbs higher and higher and the hillside becomes bare rock, as you would expect as you get higher and higher altitudes. He sees more evidence of people who've been dwelling on these mountains, um, a long history of, of climbing and climbers. It is a long climb for Carter too. Um, but there's an interesting point here. It, it doesn't have anything to do with his ability as a rock, rock climber or a mountain climber as well. It's that he's an experienced dreamer. This comes up a lot here. So if you're an experienced dreamer, you can kind of do whatever you want in the dreamlands. That's the really key to having ability here. It's not your physical skill so much. Now, he essentially, he eventually sees the faces of uh, that he was looking for. Here's what Lovecraft writes, quote, It was a god chiseled by the hand of the gods, and it looked down haughtily and majestic upon the seeker. Rumor had said that it was strange not to be mistaken, and Carter saw that it was indeed so, for those long narrow eyes and long lobed ears and that thin nose, that pointed chin, all spoke of a race that is not of men but of gods. He clung overawed on that lofty and perilous eerie, even though it was this which he had expected and come to find. For there is in the God's face more of a marvel than prediction can tell. And when that face is vaster than a great temple and seen down from the sunset in the cryptic silences of the upper world from those from whose dark lava it was divinely hewn of old, the marvel is so strong that none may escape it. So he sees the face and he knew, it, I think it, it comes to him almost intuitively, um, you know, but I think there's, he makes some relationship between the face to the kin of such he saw in the taverns of Cellarface. So he, he kind of says, I've seen a face like that before in Cellarface. That's what, that's what it is. But he's sort of instantly grocks that he has to go to Cellarface. So, um, and see his old friend Karanis. Karanis is the main character in Cellarface. He, as you'll recall from that story, Wanted to go to Cellophis, gets there, and he becomes the king of Cellophis, but at the cost of, of losing his, his life on Earth and dying on Earth and being stuck in the dreamlands. Um, but he has to go there and see Karena. So that kind of ends the next sort of segment. As I talked about last time, I kind of broke up this dream quest into, um, by the end, it's something like um, 35, almost 40 different vignettes, little segments, different stories. Uh, different things that happen to him, stages of the quest, if you will, right? So the 10th stage would be this climbing of the granite and seeing the faces. Um, now, the 11th section, the next part I want to look at now, is Carter being captured by the Night Gaunts. So the Night Gaunts are going to be a major plot point throughout the novel, especially in the last quarter. Um, but in this part, he gets captured by the Night Gaunts. Uh, so he must go back the way he came, uh, go back down. He sees a condor. That's how, again, we're reminded how high he is on this mountain of Granic. Um, and then he feels he's got the sword with him. I think he picked it up in one of the towns and something takes his sword. Um, and before he knows it, he's actually being lifted up. Well, actually lifted. He gets lifted up, but then he's taken down by the night gaunts. Um, now, the night gaunts are, as all these things are, are basically a creation of of Lovecraft, um, one of his more famous creations, I guess. Now, the Night Gaunts aren't like purely evil. They're they're kind of it's a little bit ambivalent what their perspective is. They 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 end up helping the ghouls later on in the story. 
But these night gods take Carter down to Earth and down into the underworld. Uh, and he's brought to this place called the Peaks of Talk, which he knows. And of course, he's an experienced dreamer, so he's able to recognize all the places of the dreamlands from either previous dreamings or rumors or things like that. So he's at the Peak of Talk. Now, the big threat down here is not the night gods. The big threat here is the the bowls, B-H-O-L-E-S. Apparently, there's some controversy over the spelling of these. Um, B-H-O-L-E-S, I guess, is the, the correct spelling. Um, I think sometimes it's spelled doles. Um, but these are kind of burrowing creatures that can't be seen, kind of uh, that are down there. So Carter's got this fear of the of the bowls. We also get a good description of the night gaunts here. Um, so it's good to, good to, uh, cause they come up again. So we should talk about them. Um, quote, but Carter preferred not to look at them as his captors, which were indeed shocking and uncouth black beings with smooth, oily whale-like surfaces, unpleasant horns that curved inward towards each other, bat wings whose beating made no sounds, ugly prehensile paws and barbed tails that lashed needlessly and disquietly. And worst of all, they never spoke or laughed and never smiled because they had no faces at all to smile with, but only a suggestive blankness where the face ought to be all they did ever was to clutch and fly and tickle and that was the way of the night gaunts so that's one of our better descriptions of the night gaunts but you're going to be scenes later on where there's like apparently hundreds of these things you know flying all in, in a in a pack and it's kind of awe-inspiring um now it seems that the night gaunts job is to deliver him somewhere he seems to be want to deliver it somewhere but uh to where right to this underworld. Um, and then that sort of leads us to the next part of his quest, the next stage of the quest, and that's through this other underground, underworld land called the Vale of Penath, basically the underworld, and his escape from the underworld. So here the threat is these bulls. These bulls are pretty horrifying creatures. They're, they're only known by rumors. They, they burrow down underground. They creep in the dark. They don't, you can't really see them. He just sort of senses that they're behind him and, and after him. So where to go? But he sees that he sees the ghouls garbage, like the leftover bones and trash of ghouls. So he knows he's in the domain of the ghouls now. And he thinks the ghouls might be his path out of the underworld. And he thinks back to his friendship with, with, uh, with Pikmin, Richard Upton Pikmin from Pikmin's model. So, we are reminded now remember i talked about this when we looked at pikmin's model this story was written around basically at the same time alongside dream quest of unknown kadath dream quest was written over that whole winter of 26 27. pikmin's model was written in september 26. so he immediately dropped the pen on bearing pikmin's model picked up the pen and started writing dream quest so this it's not like years later he says i'm going to bring back this character pikmin it's, it was he immediately intended Pikmin almost. It almost seems like he was thinking of Pikmin's future in Kodath when he wrote Pikmin's model. Um, now, of course, he disappears. He vanishes at the end of that story. And where does he go? Well, he goes to the dreamlands and he goes to live with the ghouls. We find out that the ghouls network has different ways of interacting with our living world. It's, it's, there's actually play parts of the dreamlands where there's like physical connections to the living world. You know, the main way of getting there is through dreams, but the other ways, it's really like dark tower stuff where there's all these different ways of passing between the different worlds. 
Um, and the ghouls have some access to that. But anyways, he wants to use the ghouls as a guide out of this land, this this veil of Panath. Um, and eventually, the ghouls do... Um, he does run into the ghouls, and they help him. But first he has to escape the bulls to get there. But he finds the domain of the ghouls, the ghoul burrows, and from there they're able to to follow he's going to be able to follow his way up out of the underworld through a large ladder now we get the description of the ghouls too um again first appearing in pigment's model those were the the things that he was drawing ghoul feeding remember that's the name of the painting um but we get some of the description of the ghouls here now lovecraftian ghouls are notable because they have these canine faces they're like dog-faced ghouls um, so that's that's their main feature. They're kind of humanoid. They're basically humanoid-ish, but they have these. Uh, they're, they're in different colors. Like some are green, some are uh, various other colors. But what's they have in common is this canine face, this dog-faced um, feature. So that's just the Lovecraftian ghouls. And and anyways. Uh, so he, when he finds the realm of the ghouls, we can kind of move on to the next um, stage in this quest, and that's uh, eventually his escape from the underworld and this whole interaction with Pikmin. So he finally, uh, we finally get to meet uh, Pikmin's under uh, or dreamland fate, or learn about his dreamland's fate by by meeting Pikmin. Um, so first he has to follow the various ghouls to find Pikmin, um, and. They end up taking him to this graveyard. And this is really interesting section here because this graveyard, it's like the ghouls brought these tombs or these headstones to them. Or are they in a place that's almost in our world, like they're crossing over? Because we're told here that there are regions that are very close to our world. And this is one of those. Like you could just step over, you could be in the world. So it's almost like it's it's like a it's like a thinny, again, to mention the Dark Tower. It's like a the place where the two worlds sort of connect. Um, this, this seems to be one of those places. So it's not clear if they're on earth in a graveyard on earth, or if they're still in the dreamlands and this is stuff they brought over, but it's a very human earthly place. The ghouls being closer to earth, I think is, is pretty clear here. I mean, they befriend Carter. They become allies of Carter by the end of the story. I mean, they are here too. Um, but for whatever reason, we're in this, this, this kind of middle zone. Um, yeah, this great scene where we see Pikmin sitting on a tombstone is, is when we first meet him. Um, now, Pikmin seems unable to help him. This is a common theme we get throughout the Dream Quest, where he runs into people and people can only help him a little bit, or not help him at all, or help him in ways that aren't as direct on his way to his quest. You know, obviously it'd be a much more important story if the first person he runs into says, yeah, I know, Kadath, here's a ticket. Oh, ticket, you can get there. A lot of things have to happen for him to get there. Just uh, um, go through all these different little mini quests before he gets there. Now, the problem here is to get out, to even to get out of the underworld, he has to go through the kingdom of the Gugs, and the Gugs are at war with the ghouls. Um, but if you do get through this, you climb up this ladder, the stairway, get to the door, this will lead you to the Enchanted Wood, but to get there, you have to go through the kingdom of the Gugs, and the Gugs are at war with the ghouls. And the Gugs also eat ghouls and ghasts, which are also another kind of ghoulish kind of creature, but they're more like um, 
underground people who never see the light, like chuds. They're more like chuds than ghouls. Um, ghouls are a little bit more rational and, you know, you can talk to them and they have their language and, and they can organize stuff. Gas seem to be more mindless chud type under underground people. Um, more Morlock type, I guess. Um, so he does have some information for him, though. So he says, you can go via Lung to Celephus. And what's eventually going to happen, though, is Carter's going to go to Celephus and go to Lung via Celephus. He's going to get to Celephus first before he can go to Lung. But um, basically, Pikmin can't be much help. Uh, he just says, here's your different choices. You can go to Lung, you can go to the Enchanted Wood. I'm sneaking past the Gugs. Carter decides he's going to try to sneak past the Gugs and get to uh, the surface of the dreamlands that way. Um, but I, I think the best part of this section is this uh, strange graveyard that where, where he meets Pikmin. It's a lot of fun. So this leads uh, him to uh, the Gug Kingdom then. So he decides he's going to sneak through. Uh, he disguises himself as a ghoul. I'm not quite sure how, why that would help him because I guess to fit in or something, but... The Gugs seem to be at war with the ghouls, so I don't know why that necessarily would help you. Um, but there's other dangers. There's the Gugs, who are like these... Uh, we should get to the description of the Gugs when we get to them. They're like big, furry, like bear-type things. Um, but there's also the Ghasts, who also attack ghouls. So there's a double danger here, both from the Gugs and the Ghasts. Um, but the city of the Gugs, it's, 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 it's some pretty interesting stuff here. So he leaves the graveyard, goes, uh, moves upward. Uh, so, quote, on the right of the hole out of which they wriggled and seen through the Isle of Monolith was a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers mounted up, illimitable into the green, gray air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are 30 feet high. Ghouls come here often for the buried Gug will feed a community for almost a year. And even with the added peril, it is better to burrow for Gugs than to bother with the graves of men. Carter now understood the occasional Titan bones he felt beneath him in the Vale of Panath. Um, so there's there's this kind of symbiotic parasitical relationship between the ghouls and the Gugs, where the Gugs eat the... Uh, the Gugs will attack the ghouls and the gas, but the ghasts and the ghouls feed on Gugs too, but the ghouls eating the dead ones, obviously. Robbing their their graves. Um, the gas are less predictable. Not really, you know. It's not quite. They're a little bit uh, a more chaotic threat. Um, so now there's there's this group of gas hunting gugs, and they kind of jump like kangaroos, but they're sort of light skinned humanoid. They kind of look a little like ghouls, I think. Um, I'm not quite sure, but they're these underground things. They can jump. They jump like kangaroos. But anyways, they're able to advance. Eventually, Carter's able to use the ghast patrol that's trying to hunt Gugs to sneak past the Gug sentries. So there's a little bit of action here. Um, but they finally able to advance, get past the Gugs, get past the, the ghasts. Um, you know... There's actually this this whole battle between the Gugs and this these ghasts. It's pretty some gruesome stuff here. Um, there's actually a lot of battles in this story, even though it's quite short. 
Uh, quote, the battle which they ensued was a truly frightful one. From all sides, the venomous gas rushed feverishly at the creeping ghoul, nipping and tearing with their muzzles and mauling murderously with their hard-pointed hooves. All the time they coughed excitedly, screaming with when the great vertical mouth of the gug would occasionally bite into one of their n number, so that the noise of the combat would surely have aroused the sleeping city had not the weakening of the sentry begun to transfer the action farther and farther within the cavern. As it was, the tumult soon receded altogether from the sight of the blackness, with only occasional evil echoes to mark its continuance. So that's the that's the battle. But this is the battle that allows Carter and the ghouls that are accompanying him to escape. They're finally able to go up the steps, get to the door to the Enchanted Woods. So that leads us to our next vignette here. Um, after the climb with the guests and the gugs, gets into the Enchanted Wood. Um, now he walks in on another war. We just saw a war between, you know, I, I do, there's not that much I want to say interpretive in this episode. That's why this is mostly going to kind of get us from here to there. Uh, it's actually the next episode. I think we'll have a lot more thematic, interesting things to explore. Um, yeah, so I think one in three are like the, the most interesting episodes in terms of the themes of this podcast. Um, two and four are much more fantastic, I guess. The last part too, because it does, it is the climax of the story, but. I think three and one are will be the most interesting episodes if you want to know about race or if you want to know about like some of Lovecraft's politics. But the way he describes the whole world of the Dreamlands is everyone's at war with everyone else and you have these different discrete, distinct races in some kind of perpetual conflict. This is actually how he sort of sees the world, isn't it? This, this If you read his letters, which we have done, read some of them anyways, you see he does see the world as really divided up into these different unreconcilable racial categories that are that are in some kind of Darwinian war. And, and that's the world of the dreamlands. Everyone seems to be at war with everyone else, taking advantage of each other, slaving them, eating off of them, feeding off of them. It's, um, yeah, no one seems to get along. And what he walks into here is a war between the Zoogs and the Cats. Um, it seemed to have started since the book began, because in the first chapter, the Zoogs were followed him to Ulthar, but didn't like get into Ulthar because they were afraid of the cats, right? And so the war didn't seem to start. But here, there is this Zoog cat war, and so Randolph Carter, um, well, actually, Randolph Carter hears from the Zoogs about their their plan to attack the cats, and Randolph Carter warns the cats of the Zoogs' plan, um, and. He's basically paying back for his the old rescue from the moon, right? In fact, he sees some of the people, some of the cats who helped on that rescue mission to the moon, which that was the cats, right? The cats are the ones who saved him from the men from Leng uh, who were on the moon and from the moon beasts. Remember the moon beasts, which are kind of like, they were kind of more frog-like creatures, right? We'll, see, we'll meet the moon beasts again. They're not out of the story entirely. Um. And it's like we get a little bit more cat lore here, which is fun. Like the cats seem to have their own kind of military discipline, their own military structure. They have different ranks like lieutenant and general and things like that. Um, but anyways, Carter for this is the first time. It won't be the last. Carter plays general. Like maybe because, again, he's a great dreamer. So he's able to, uh, in a sense of lucid dreaming, be able to prepare the surprise attack uh, on the Zoogs. And when the cats initiate the plan, 
the Zoogs are finally forced to surrender to the cats. And there's a peace treaty that gets signed. So all this happens in a few pages of the book, but it's all rather fun and wild. I mean, the cats having military rank and military discipline is, is weird enough, but Carter's telling the cats, this is how you want to attack the Zooks. It's a lot of fun, but they kind of put this peace treaty. So this is uh, maybe a glimmer of hope that there's some future for the Dreamlands to have some uh, peace, but it's not a very equal peace treaty. It's like the, the cat's uh, version of Versailles almost. Quote, terms were discussed at length, Carter acting as interpreter, and it was decided that the Zooks must remain a free tribe on condition of rendering to the cats a large annual tribute of grouse, quail, and pheasants from the less fabulous parts of the forest. Twelve young Zoogs of noble family were taken as hostages to be kept in the Temple of Cats at Ulthar, and the victors made it plain that any disappearance of cats on the borders of the Zoog domain would be followed by consequences highly disastrous to Zoogs. These matters disposed of, the assembled cats both rank and permitted the Zoogs to slink off one by one to their respective homes, which they hastened to do with many a sullen backward glance. So yeah, I kind of read this as... as uh, Lovecraft's take on the Treaty of Versailles, I guess. And he, I don't think he has a problem with it, necessarily. Um, later historians do. But, uh, but, you know, they're the losers. They get to, they get to be punished. Pay, re- pay reparations to the cats in the, you know, in the form of grouse, quail, and pheasants from the forest. Um, so now the cats, even though I think Carter was kind of paying back the debt, the cats kind of say, well, we are, we're in your debt. So they're going to reward him by guiding him to, to sell a face. And they give him some kind of password. I think this is the second password. He also has the ghoul password, which will be important later on. So the cat said, we're going to guide you to, to, to sell a face, show you how to get there. And essentially what he's going to have to do is he's going to have to climb or walk, not climb. He's going to have to walk along the river north. Like previously in the story, he went south from the Enchanted Woods. I guess south or we one direction. I, I have this uh, kind of map made by fans, reprinted in the Klinger edition, made by Jason Thompson, um, and it's south there to Dileth Lean. This time he goes north to um, to the city of Thrain, I guess it's called. Goes north to the city of Thrain, where he'll take a boat to Selaface. There's a geography here. Um, again, I think that map is kind of useful. I don't know if it's like a legit canon map i don't know if lovecraft ever drew a, a map of the dreamlands there's all these different locations many of the places from the other stories he actually encounters here like Celiface, like ulthar some places are mentioned in the other dreamland stories but not visited um in in this particular story but quite a few are so anyways he's got this long walk to the sea in my mind it's going north um and he eventually finds a seaside town, which will provide him passage to Celeface. And this town is called Thran. Um, not much happens here. He's able to buy uh, a ship ticket. Um, and he tells stories of his dreams to the various people. So usually he walks around the taverns at these seaside towns, talks to the sailors, tries to get rumors about Sela, about Kadath or the Black Galleys or something like that. Here he tells his stories. In fact, he has to tell stories of his dreams to get into the city. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of the payment to get into the city. But we, once again, we got these wonderful scenes of a maritime town. Lovecraft really seems to... It's actually something that, like, the first time I read this, I didn't notice it as much. But now that I've been thinking about the sea a lot more, just how much of this novel is spent in 
in taverns in in coastal towns and, and maritime towns and interacting with sailors and such. It's it's like a third of the story is in some way connected to the sea. This is really it's a maritime story. It's it's like a allegory for New England in a way, or an allegory for a global a global world. Um, but we have it again here too. Uh, quote, Carter knew his way and edged down through darker streets to the river where at an old sea tavern he found the captains and seamen he had known in myriad other dreams. There he bought his passage to Selephus on a great green galleon, and there he stopped for the night after speaking gravely to the venerable cat of the inn, whose blinking dozed before an enormous hearth and dreamed of old wars and forgotten gods. But he doesn't stay long in this town, and he eventually takes this... Uh, Galleon to Salaface. And, and that brings us to the next vignette, 17 from the beginning of the novel, if you're keeping track. Uh, the Galleon to Salaface on the Cyrenaic Sea, or Cyrenian Sea. So this is a nice uh, uh, voyage where he talks to a lot of sailors. He talks to them about Salaface. He talks about the Black Galleon uh, folks, or the Black Galley folks, sorry, not the Black Galleon. Now this time he actually gets a good lead. Uh, about the land of the black galleys, which he was lacking before. Um, and this is this town of Iganok. Iganok, I guess. I-N-G-A-N-O-K. This is the land of the black galleys. It's near Leng. So it's near the, the plateau of Leng. So that's where he's going to have to go. And the Leng is, of course, these cold um, reaches, these, these cold lands north of the the north of the dreamlands, the Arctic of the dreamlands, I suppose. And they connect somehow to Mountains of Madness, right? To that alien city. Um, now, they don't know Kadath, but they know this Ignanic. Ig Ig so the decision is made by Carter to go there first. But first, they're going to have to pass through Selaface. Um, they pass another like trading city which is really architecturally kind of interesting. It's very much like New England. It's got the, those uh, pitched roofs, those gabled roofs, New England-style town. It's another trading city that they pass, but they just sort of pass by it very quickly. And eventually they get to Selephus. And uh, that's where I want to kind of leave off today is with this final section where with, the, with this arrival at Selephus. This uh, is a great city. This is, uh, we know that from his previous... Uh, dream Dreamland stories, Selaface is one of the great cities of the Dreamlands. Um, so Lovecraft has to sort of stick with that. Um, quote, Swiftly there came into sight the glittering minarets of that fabulous town and the untarnished marble walls with their bronze statues and the great stone bridge where Narax had joined the sea. Then rose the green gentle hills behind the town with their groves and gardens of asphalt days and the small shrines and cottages upon them, and far into the background, the purple ridge of the Tenarians, potent and mystical, beyond which lay forbidden ways into the waking world and towards other regions of dreams. It's also another maritime town, of course. It's all connected by sea with many galleys, um, ships, as far as the eye can see. Um, so Carter eventually stays for a while among various sailors, like once again, hanging out at the taverns, hanging out at the sailors' inns, getting rumors about um, about what's out there. Uh, and he's preparing essentially for his journey to Lang. Um, we get a lot here about the religion of Selaface, which is really kind of interesting stuff, that they seem to worship this god Nathrothal, 
Um, and they're warned about worshiping other gods because they're too close to, too connected to Nara Opatep. So there's a little bit of more awareness of this overarching threat of the story, um, Athatoth and, and Nara Opatep. So there's kind of a, it's not a true monotheism, but it's like a, a type of henotheism where they say you can't worship these other gods because they're too dangerous. Um, now he, before going on to meet Karanis, he actually decides to meet with the chief of the cats of Celeface. And remember, he has this uh, uh, code, this password that I guess allows him to talk to cats everywhere. Um, and the cats actually say that they reject and they refuse the ships of Ignarak. Um, but the cats will lead him to Karanis. Um, and we're told that Karanis has kind of abandoned being the king. So if you go back to the story of Celeface, Karanis gave up everything, gave up his life on Earth to become... A, a king of Celeface, essentially. But we find now, and here's where Lovecraft really sort of changes the story or retcons a little bit, the story of, or at least maybe it's a sequel to Celeface, is where he finds Karanis is not satisfied with Celeface anymore. He gets bored with it, and instead he wants to kind of go back to the ideal of his youth. Um, it's kind of like this in The Silver Key, we have the same idea of returning to one's youth and getting lost in one's youth. Um, now, ultimately, I think the story is going different ways, um, but this one little section, Celephase, really reminds us of the Silver Key. But uh, Carter, or, or I mean Karanis, uses his powers, his, his powers king or whatever, to build a model of, of Cornwall, a model of the England of his youth. Karanis is from London. He's not from New England. Uh and that's going to be important too, because Carter's of New England. Karanis is of is of England, so we get an Anglo-American alliance established here. But he's created this own kind of fake England that he lives in, and so the cats lead him to there, and that's where I want to leave off. So this episode, like like I said, it's more getting from from there to here. It's more the journey. Uh, some interesting stuff happens. I think war. Certainly, we, we learn how important war is and how these different races are at war. We get a little bit of an allegory for Versailles, I'm pretty sure. This is what I'm thinking, when they go the war between the cats and the Zoogs. Um, we get um, a little bit more maritime history, not as much in the first part of the story. I think there was much richer there, but we do get a little bit more sailing, a little bit more ship travel. Um, but we're kind of halfway through. We're halfway to our story. Carter's gone through all these different adventures, captured, brought to the moon, captured by the night gods, brought to the underworld, escaped the doles, uh, escaped the gugs, escaped the gas, got back to the Enchanted Woods, helped the cats in a war, traveled eventually to uh, another town, got all the way to Celeface. So he's now prepared to try to find his way to to uh, the land, to the city of the people of, of Lung. And we'll see how he gets there or if he gets there in the next part. Um, so part three, we'll focus on his what happens in Celephus, his adventures in Ignarak, um, and, and eventually to... Uh, a big battle between the ghouls and, and, the, and the men from Lang. So uh, a lot of action, but thematically there's some interesting stuff I want to talk about, especially dealing with this character of Karanis. So Karanis is going to be maybe the, the thematic focus of the next episode. 
at least uh, or at least early on in that episode. But there's a lot of great stuff to to think about in terms of Carter and Karanis's identity, and 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 this uh, kind of the pull of the youth and and all this stuff. So uh, we'll see. We'll see you next time. So, anyways, what did you think of this part of the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath? Have you read it? Hopefully, you have. Hopefully, you have some um, comments, some things we can add interpretively. This is a really rich text, so I'm sure there's a lot of things that I skipped over, or didn't focus on, or, or just forgot about. So, let me know what those are, and, and we'll correct the record. Um, but, anyways, as always, thanks for listening to this podcast. I appreciate your support, and I'll see you next time with part three of my thoughts, my review of. Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. See you then.